0: Well, the European Parliament has demonstrated what apparently passes for steely resolve these days. Three months after Russia invaded Ukraine, the European Parliament in early June has finally decided to ban imports of Russian oil. Eventually, it's a ban that doesn't start for another six months. We'll see what Putin does in response, given all those many months available to him to do other mischief in energy markets. In fact, Russia has already throttled back natural gas deliveries to various European countries as I speak in the last few days. We'll see what else Russia decides to do in energy retaliation to think nothing that would happen is, uh, well, to put it politely, profoundly naive. It's worth noting that Russia's natural gas was left off the list of what the EU wants to ban. The reason, of course, is that Europe gets 40% of its natural gas from Russia and replacing that's far harder than finding different sources of oil. Oil is easier to transport and the market's deeply fungible. In effect, there's already been a kind of grand swap in oil markets. Europe is already taking more delivery from oil in the Atlantic markets that used to go to Asia. And meanwhile, Russian oil, Surprise! Surprise, is getting delivered to the Asian markets that used to get the oil from the Atlantic markets. So it's kind of an open secret that a lot of the embargoed Russian oil ends up now in India, at deep discount to the refiners there, who then produce diesel fuel, shipped to Europe, sold at the now elevated market prices. It's a uh, it's not an easy market, uh, and as I said, and as most people recognize, oil is a deeply fungible commodity, almost as fungible as you know cash and dollars. Natural gas is far harder to shift around in the same way because there just aren't enough LNG tankers in the world today. It takes a while to build them to replace the quantities of natural gas that are moving in the pipelines that come from Russia into Europe. In Germany, Germany of all countries, is passing legislation now to not only increase natural gas storage cap- capacities, and build in LNG import terminals to be ready for when the day arrives that the LNG tankers are finished. But you can do a drum roll here, I suppose. They're reactivating by law coal-fired power plants. It's gonna get very complicated and potentially very economically unpleasant going forward to keep the economy running, to literally keep the lights on in Europe. And that would include keeping the computers and the cloud humming as well. So as this crisis in Ukraine grinds miserably on, all the pursuits to delink from dependencies on Russian hydrocarbons are evolving into something I guess we could call an energy rail politique, if not in words, at least in practice. On one hand, policymakers are literally chasing virtually any non-Russian source of hydrocarbons from Qatar and Saudi Arabia and the United States to Israel and even trying to access Nigeria's bounty. Nigeria has the Africa's largest approved natural gas reserves and is now planning to build a trans-saharan pipeline to ship natural gas to Europe via Algeria. All this takes time. So at the same time the governments on both sides of the Atlantic while they're scrambling for hydrocarbons are also scrambling to reaffirm and even expand commitments to the energy transition policies now that they're repurposed with the added goal of delinking from Russian hydrocarbons. So we have people like the well-known, now well-known BlackRock chairman, Larry Fink, uh, stating, and I quote, the Ukraine crisis will accelerate the shift towards greener sources of energy, end quote. Look, for either path, whether increasing production of hydrocarbons or trying to accelerate the putative energy transition, For either of those paths, there's exactly the same core issue that matters now in the real world. How fast can the world bring online any new source of energy at the scales needed? Policymakers would like to believe the answer to that is found through the stroke of a legislative pen invoking aspirational language, always invoking aspirational language. I mean, look, no one doubts the power of that pen to create incentives or impediments to reward or punish. That's a pretty powerful pen, as we all know. But the answer to the question about the velocity of increased production, really, it's dictated fundamentally by the realities of the physical world. What can you actually do? I've talked in earlier podcasts, and I'll do it again in the future, about just how much and how fast oil and gas production can be increased. Uh, I think there's some surprises on the upside and downside there. As I say, we'll talk about that in another podcast. My focus in this episode is on the still underappreciated materials related challenges in more rapidly building or building at all, the machinery that's the, at the core of the uh, energy transition. And especially and in particular, the realities for accelerating the availability of the key minerals you need for all the energy transition machines. As I've said before, and I've written frequently about this, And for those interested in the details, again, just use the magic Dr. Google and you can find a lot that I've written about about this challenge. All of the favorite energy transition technologies, solar, wind, batteries, batteries for cars and batteries for the grid, all of them require a lot more stuff to be mined, refined, fabricated, transported, and put into machines to make the infrastructures of the so-called energy transition. And it takes far more materials per unit of energy going that path to replace the same amount of energy using hydrocarbons. In fact, the increase in minerals requirements to repeat a fact that comes from the International Energy Agency, World Bank, International Monetary Funds, mining organizations, this is not a a criticism in the sense it's a fact. The increase in the quantities of minerals needed per unit of energy When you use wind, solar, and batteries instead of hydrocarbons, the increase is from 300% to 7,000% or more more increase in basic materials needed, again, to produce the same unit of energy, materials like steel, glass, concrete, and of course, minerals like copper, nickel, aluminum, lithium, eudemium. Now, to put this in context, the balanced grids that don't use hydrocarbons, let's say, and use wind and solar for every gigawatt of wind or solar that you put on a grid if you want to balance it without hydrocarbons you need about a gigaton of batteries to be built a gigaton for those who are prefix challenged is a billion a billion tons of batteries per thousand megawatts of wind or solar have to be built to balance grids we're nowhere close to building that much and of course the billion tons of batteries take billions of tons of minerals to build or Put more and we'll call it Tesla terms. There are roughly 15 million electric vehicles on, that are on the road today. They've already required the mining and consumption of about 15 years worth of cobalt to build batteries for smartphones. Let's talk about nickel, and never mind the more exotic metals. Nickel like copper, a very common metal. Talk about nickel because Russia is the world's third biggest nickel producer. And the invasion of Russia, the invasion by Russia of Ukraine, raised the prospect uh, in markets for the loss of Russian supply. Uh, That triggered an epic price spike in nickel prices. In fact, nickel prices are still elevated. That kind of entanglement is uh, what I want to explore in, in this episode. Nickel kind of epitomizes it because, well, as a practical matter, the amount of nickel that's going into the construction of electric vehicle batteries right now which is an entirely new source of demand for nickel, by the way, obviously, that quantity of nickel is already equal to the total Russian production of nickel. And that's with EVs today, still barely 5% of annual vehicle production. So what that means is that as we increase EV production beyond the 5% of total vehicle production, to replace a Russian hydrocarbons, Russian oil, we're gonna be increasing our dependence on nickel including Russian nickel because the supplies of nickel to the world are just as leaky as the supplies of oil to the world out of Russia. The jump in demand for metals and minerals is, is almost entirely coming. And there's a huge jump in global demand for metals and minerals. And it's almost entirely coming from the manufacturing and the manufacturers of electric vehicles, the batteries for electric vehicles, for grid batteries. And for wind turbines and solar modules, it's inflating mineral prices already. And as I've uh, said in earlier podcasts, but it's worth restating, is that inflation of mineral prices is reversing the decade long trend of falling costs for wind turbines and solar modules and batteries. Because the minerals used to make those green energy machines account for a very big share of the cost to manufacture the machines. Mineral inflation, of course, also impacts the cost for everything else that's built from the same elements. How high and for how long prices go up? Well, that'll depend mainly on whether transition policies continue to create not only the currently high demand for those minerals, but increasing demands for those minerals. And as a practical matter, the world's miners and refiners, refiners, they're simply not building enough capacity. They don't have enough capacity today to supply it. The quantities, and they are not planning to, and they are not investing in, and they are not announcing investments in sufficient mining capacity to meet the demand that will come from the energy transition plans. In fact, if we set aside the exotic elements that have become more commonly discussed in the news, like lithium, cobalt, and rare earths, if the current transition plans are implemented, the world will be short of just basic metals like copper and nickel again. And the energy transition minerals. They don't come from a wide variety of countries as oil does. In fact, in geopolitical terms, China's market share of energy transition minerals is double the market share that OPEC has in petroleum. Tells you something about the geopolitics and the, the need for an energy realpolitik and what's coming as we keep pushing energy transition policies is a fundamental matter that policies are driving the world towards a increasing shortfall in basic mineral supplies. That means that the prices of energy transition minerals will keep rising as demand continues to outrun supply. This is a very basic phenomenon in commodity markets. The world has a very long history with such a dynamic and it always leads to just two outcomes. You get demand destruction, or you get supply expansion. The only two outcomes that are possible. The velocity of the former, demand destruction, is always faster than the velocity of the latter, supply expansion. So since mineral inputs alone comprise almost two-thirds of the cost to manufacture batteries and solar modules and about one-fourth of the cost to manufacture wind turbines, that means that transition economics will become even more challenging in the future than they are now. The promise of ever cheaper renewable energy isn't happening now and it won't happen because again, the world is not building enough capacity to supply the minerals that are needed. So prices are going to keep going up. So instead, what's going to happen here, and I think the odds are very high of this, is that we'll see, to use the economist's term, demand destruction, which is another way of saying that the transition goals, they'll end up getting ramped down because they'll have to get ramped down. People wanna say that, um, but that's what will happen. In fact, some of, some of it's already happening. At the same time, policymakers are, are determined, and they've said as much, to not only maintain, but to expand the transition mandates and subsidies. So this is gonna be an interesting uh, intersection. One of the most important features of the intersection is the extent to which miners, the mining, mining businesses in the world, the extent to which they're confident that high demand, mandated and otherwise, continues because that will maintain high prices. And of course, in high prices, again, this is sort of economics 101, producers will produce more. In fact, they'll expand supply. They'll expand supply using options that used to be too expensive. They'll do that, again, to restate this, and it's important to keep this in mind, to the extent they're confident the prices will stay up high enough, long enough to recover those investments. Well, let's assume that'll happen because that seems to be happening. I mean, it, uh, it, it's, a, it's inflationary. Uh, it, it's not, I think it's politically risky, but that's what's going on. The world is expanding its mandates and, and its subsidies for the energy transition machines and therefore minerals in the extent to which that continues, prices will continue to escalate and therefore supply will increase. The key question is how fast and how much, because that will determine whether or not, whether or not and when, as eventually does happen, supply overtakes uh, demand and prices start to relax again. It's the nature of commodity markets. It first has to be said that uh, ramping up mineral supplies requires governments to be favorable to big mines and big chemical processing facilities. The importance of that feature over innovation is dramatized by a fact that some people have read about these days, now that we're paying more attention to minerals in China, the fact that China's 80% global share of rare earth supplies didn't come from China inventing more effective mining techniques or developing more effective technology for refining rare earths. Instead, it came from very favorable policies for mining in that country. Meanwhile, the United States, the regulatory environment here for mining is, to put it bluntly, is hostile. So the U.S. went from supplying about 40% of the world's rare earth elements in the 1970s to depending on imports for over 95% of all our domestic needs for rare earths today. In fact, the United States today depends on imports for about 100% of some 17 minerals and we import more than half of 28 others in general, well under 10% of global spending on mineral exploration happens in the United States. Not because we don't have lots of minerals here, but again because it's a hostile territory uh, to open new mines. The European Union is in the same boat. It's not as if policymakers haven't been aware of this challenge and the import dependencies, the geopolitical risks, the economic consequences. There've been many, many congressional hearings dozens of policy reports from the federal government and other places over many decades, and they've all reached the same two basic conclusions. America's territories contain vast mineral reserves and resources. The way to decrease import dependencies and all the challenges that presents is to increase domestic mining. The National Academy of Sciences pointed that out in a 1999 report on mining. Let me quote, lack of early consistent cooperation and participation by all the federal, state, and local agencies involved in the regulatory processes results in excessive costs, delays, and inefficiencies. End quote. The, US, the United States has one of the longest permitting pro, permitting processes in the world. It's got a track record, especially recently, of reversing permits and can, outright canceling uh, long-fought, hard-won regulatory approvals. In fact, policymakers over the last number of years have decreased Access to the federal lands for mineral exploration, never mind development. In the Western states, where there's a lot of minerals, the federal government controls about 90% of the land area, and nearly half of that is now off limits to exploration and mining. So, no wonder we import so much. The United States, along with Europe, has essentially regulated its way into greater mineral import dependencies. That means that energy transition aspirations will lead to more import dependencies. Prospect of policy reversals on the mining front, they're real, it's possible. The stroke of the pen again, I think it's debatable. I'm skeptical that that'll happen, but it's possible. It could happen as we begin to face up to the real of energy of all kinds. But regardless of where the mines are located, it doesn't matter where they are, it's technology that will play the central role in determining how much production can actually expand, how fast it can expand, and at what price. Of course, again, higher prices always inspire investors to open new mines somewhere, and they stimulate the appetite for taking risks with new technologies, because new technologies are always a risk to adopt initially. So prices, again, stay high enough, long enough to recover the costs of the new, typically more expensive to implement technologies. They'll be implemented. Mining will expand. Uh, you know, I should spend a second to digress on the issue of recycling because everybody in their head in every report and every analysis on minerals and mining, every one of them leads with as the number one solution to solving the mineral shortage problem is to do more recycling and higher prices always encourage more recycling. In fact, they encourage theft of copper, which is a notorious challenge all over the world. And a bigger challenge now, the copper prices are high and the theft of palladium, which is in catalytic converters and palladium prices are record high and thieves are ripping uh, catalytic converters right off of the bottom of cars because of the value of the palladium. So recycling, both legal and illegal, becomes more appealing when prices are high. And of course, a lot of advocates for recycling believe that will solve the mineral demand problem for the green energy machines. We simply have to, do a lot more what they call urban mining, you know, recycle more. Or now we have this new chimerical goal of the circular economy, you know, hundred percent recycling, everything that becomes waste. You recycle all of it and you recapture all the copper or nickel that you've already mined all, all noble ideas, all possible up to a point. Uh, there's obviously a lot more opportunity to increase recycling rates. In fact, a UN study looked at recycling rates globally recently and pointed out that roughly um, less, well, i us say a third, it was less than a third of, this, of, of 60 metals that they studied, a fewer, under one state this correctly, under one third of those 60 metals have end of life recycling rates that are over 50%. And some three dozen elements have recycling rates that are below 1%. So obviously you could do a lot more recycling. And again, high prices uh, not only stimulate recycling, they justify the almost always higher cost of recycling rather than getting virgin materials. Uh, Governments can mandate recycling, they do. It bears noting that when you mandate recycling, you essentially are mandating maintaining inflated prices because recycling is on average average, more expensive than getting the uh, new materials. And recycling is just difficult for a whole lot of reasons. Don't have to go down that rabbit hole right now, because for our purposes, what really matters is assume, let's assume 100% recycling. Assume it's cheap. Assume it's easy. If we were to recycle 100% of all the metals coming out of worn out green energy machines, it's a simple, arithmetical fact that those recycling rates, even at perfection, wouldn't come close to meeting the supply gap. For the expansion of the construction of batteries and solar modules in wind turbines. The growth rate in demand is again the 300% to 7,000% increase in demands to meet the energy transition plans. That increase in demands for minerals utterly overwhelms the marginal additions that could come to supply from recycling the relatively small quantity of worn out hardware over the next several decades. So back to uh, technology, the uh, other trope, and it is a trope that is offered, and it's in every, again, every study and has been for decades, is that another technology solution to increase supply is to increase the underlying efficiency of the machines themselves, to effectively dematerialize the green machines. That What they mean by that is that if I make a solar module more efficient, I can build fewer solar modules, use less mineral, fewer minerals to get the same electricity, same for batteries. If I make a battery chemistry with a higher energy density, that means I have a lighter battery to store the same amount of energy. That means I use less copper, less nickel, less manganese, less cobalt to produce the same energy storage capacity. So it effectively expands the supply of minerals. That's all that's all true. And in fact, that kind of progress is is not only feasible, it's technologically inevitable. But this is the big but again, to have a meaningful impact on the magnitude of primary demand for minerals, the underlying efficiencies of solar wind um, machines and batteries would have to see tenfold leaps in improvement not 10% leaps, but tenfold leaps in improvement to match the kind of uh, tenfold increases and more in demand that are coming. Those kind of gains in efficiency aren't even theoretically feasible. They're not possible in the laws of physics in the universe that we live in. In fact, most of the technologies that we're talking about, the primary technologies of the energy transition, are well past the early stages of development when rapid improvements in efficiencies happen. And they've entered the normal stage of of development and technology gains where you just get incremental gains each year across each one of these uh, classes of technology. And of course, you hear in the news almost daily, if you follow these subjects, uh, headlines about uh, breakthroughs uh, in a technology, breakthroughs in batteries, breakthroughs in wind turbines. If you look at the fine print or read between the lines or read the primary study, you'll find that none of the breakthroughs are even close to achieving the order of magnitude increases in efficiency of physical materials that are needed to offset the astronomical increase in demands that are coming for minerals from the earth. Look to reduce the use of cobalt, which breakthrough headline would say, we don't need, we can make batteries without cobalt. Of course you can, Uh, but you have to use something else. So reducing cobalt typically means using more nickel. or you can avoid using nickel and cobalt by using a new class of battery called the lithium iron phosphate chemistry. That avoids the nickel and cobalt in the battery chemistry entirely. But again, in the real world that we live in, there are trade-offs. Lithium iron phosphate batteries have lower energy density, which means you need to have a bigger, heavier battery, which uses more copper and more aluminum, both of which are not in sufficient supply already to meet the demands in the next few years Never mind the next decade. And of course, the, the real the real revolution is now going to come from the technologies in mining itself, the, the ability to extract uh, more metal per ton of rock, or more effectively get the rocks out of the earth, or at lower cost, at a higher velocity, or more effectively get the metals out of the rock, out of the ore, because the concentration of the metals in the ore is always and everywhere rather low. I mean. Copper ore grades are typically in the sort of 1% range. That means to get a, a a ton of copper, you have to mine 100 tons, roughly, or 99 tons, strictly speaking, of rock. So anything that can make the machines that do that more efficient, revolutions there are meaningful. And improvements there are, are inevitable. In fact, far more improvements are possible there than any other way, because frankly, we're entering, it's back to my my core thesis in my book, The Cloud Revolution. In the digital era, we're finding significant and meaningful improvements in our ability to manage complex me- mechanical uh, supply chain and physical chemistry processes. All these meaningful improvements come from artificial intelligence and sensors and autonomous systems. They will make uh, dramatic improvements in the uh, efficacy for finding, uh, digging up, moving and refining minerals. But bottom line, the one to keep in mind is that the green green machines that we put in use today and the mines that we built today will use the technologies that exist today, not those that will exist in the near future. But the near future does matter. I mean, mean, and this is where my optimism comes in because the near future is the future of our children and our grandchildren may not be the future of the political lifespans of those who are maintaining the policies that are causing price escalation. But the near future does matter. And we do invest for the near future. Businesses do, governments should and do. And technology progress always yields new kinds of machines and new kinds of processes that drive improvements. And when it comes to mining, I give uh, an example of a usefully near future, a foreseeable near future, but not useful from the viewpoint of delinking from Russia, but as an example of what's happened with copper again. It's a very common mineral. It's again, the oldest, it's the mineral with the longest history. It's the oldest known mined mineral, the first compromised date before written history. The copper uh, ore grades today, that is the concentration of copper in the rock that we find, ore grades today are roughly one third what they were 70 years ago. And yet the world produces more copper and until very recently for about the same price. Uh, despite a tripling of the quantity of rocks that have to be dug up and the tripling of the quantity of rocks you have to grind up to extract and refine pure copper. Uh, until very recently, when demands were pushed up by mandates for green machines, copper prices were stayed rather moderate and oscillated commodity up and down, but on average have been slightly declining for a century, even as demand increased, because of technology because of the improvements in the technology of the machines and the refining systems. And that's where the revolution is gonna come in the future. The revolution that we're gonna see in the useful future from the viewpoint of our, again, our long-run possibilities over the coming decades, stated again, not the possibilities over the next few years or few months. These revolutions are gonna come again from the realm of big industrial machines. Uh, you know, big industrial machines, you know, backhoes and caterpillar tractors and big refineries, these these kinds of um, technology domains have become sort of de A in the digital era. Yeah, everybody knows they're important, but they're not the stuff of revolutions. Wall Street doesn't get very excited about them. But we're, we're having kind of a stock market inversion right now playing out literally as we speak. No idea what the market's doing as I'm talking now or you're listening, but we're in a uh, another one of those so called secular shifts of the cooling off of the hot tech stocks and commodity stocks or the basic industrial sectors are the ones, including energy, basic energy, oil, gas, and coal. Those are the ones that are heating up. So, what we're rediscovering is the centrality of the technologies of the machines of the so called old industries. In fact, it's worth noting that Elon Musk, who's one of the storied tech titans of the modern industries, right? I mean, he's actually said that Tesla's long-term competitive advantage is in manufacturing, which is, let's state again, an old industry. And he's also said recently, which is kind of interesting that he might have to get into the mining business. That'd be kind of interesting if he does. In fact, I, I for one hope he does, but every manufacturing process depends on big machines complex supply chain processes to access move and convert materials that conversion uh, to, to put a philosophical point on it all those machines and conversions involve essentially just two things logic and energy logic meaning the ideas the information how to find how to how to operate how to look how to interpret data and of course energy is always required always and everywhere to operate and make machines and to operate and, and uh and animate processes that convert materials from one form to another. I think that, uh, and then then this is where my, I'll call it near-term optimism, uh, mid-term, saying it again, not in time to make any difference to what we can deal with with respect to Russia right now, uh, or with respect to hydrocarbons right now, or the fact that we're, we are now facing and will continue to face mineral shortages for the coming years, we can reverse that problem with demand destruction on the mineral side. By that, by that, I mean ramp back the aspirations to mandate more rapid construction of the machines using the minerals, ramp back the transition mandates and subsidies to take pressure off mineral demands and way prices will relax. But I think governments can reasonably believe and policymakers can reasonably believe that the predicates are in place to see sort of one of history's rare manufacturing transformations, including in mining, the kind that occurred a century ago. I mean, again, this is my book, The Cloud Revolution. That's what that's about. Um, I'm not naive that governments uh, will impede transitions, but the transition is coming. The last industrial revolution came from sort of the contemporaneous combination of two things, the new logic, if you like, of production, that was mass production, and the new kinds of manufacture machines. You know, a that was the advent of electric motor in the internal combustion engine. Today's industrial revolution is also coming from intersection of those two same domains, the logic of production. And now it's network machines mediated by artificial intelligence through the cloud and with new classes of machines. And In our case, in our time, this is a particular autonomous or smart machines, robots. These are, these are genuinely revolutionary. They are now becoming practical. But transformations of this magnitude, especially a society moving scale, they don't happen overnight. They're inexorable, they're inevitable. They look like they happen overnight in hindsight and they can be relatively quick within a decade, within the yet to roar 2020s, to coin a phrase, but it can happen. And, and they're coming at a, di- a time in our, in our near future where the demand for all minerals, commodities, all basic industries will keep rising because of the uh, expansion of the world's population and expansion eventually post-inflation of world wealth. And it's also coming at a time when the world is facing a shortage of skilled labor, especially the Western world. You know, the issue of a higher labor cost, just finding enough people with the right skills to operate the machines and the processes uh, this is now a um, an emerging crisis. It's uh, we're we're not quite at crisis stage, but it's a serious problem. Every industry of every kind in the in the world is reporting a shortage of access to a skilled labor. Ironically and importantly, this is exactly where the two new classes of technology are going to are going to help us. And even if these two classes of technology are out of fashion on Wall Street right now, with the so-called great rotation away from tech, the fact is that artificial intelligence, the technologies of AI, allow effectively upskilling of employees by automating the sort of the basic decision-making tasks that used to be done and increasingly won't be done by uh, middle management. They'll be moved towards the front line of operations because AI can provide sort of rudimentary decision-making assistance to people who have, uh, don't have the higher education, the, the, the quote, lower-skilled domains, the non-college-educated domains. I mean, this kind of um, virtual uh, cobot, collaborative robot in the cloud, artificial intelligence, advice, and assistance is becoming more common and will accelerate and upskill employees, which makes it easier to pay an employee more and easier for the employee to make decisions at the front lines with uh, without having to wait for the uh, the delays and the expense of, let's say, management making a decision. The same thing is happening in the physical tasks. I mean, that's what robots do. I mean, maybe the most, maybe the most interesting class of robot that's been in science fiction basically since the 60s, uh, but is now uh, another, one of these uh, proverbial overnight successes finally becoming practical are the exoskeletons. It's another class of collaborative robot or cobot a, a, a term that was created the cobot term was created by uh, professors of computing science at northwestern um collaborative robots in the form of exoskeletons wearable exoskeletons aren't in science fiction anymore in fact they're being deployed to allow uh, one person to lift um uh, weights that would normally require you know lift objects to machines boxes that would normally require two people not only this the exoskeleton let one person replicate the, uh, the mechanical function, if you like, the power function of tube, but also do it more safely than the two pe- people have done. So it reduces injuries, safer. One company I kind of like, it's one of the pioneers of exoskeletons is called Sarcos Robotics. And they have um, commercial uh, exoskeletons. Again, you know, go online, look at um, their website or go to one of the uh, YouTube, YouTube channels. There's plenty of demonstrations. Of the machine, and in fact, Delta Airlines uh, launched uh, not too long ago a, a commercial field trial with um, baggage handlers wearing the exoskeleton. And you know, Sarcos makes a reasonable claim that the all-in cost equivalent of uh, using an exoskeleton comes out to about 25 bucks an hour. It's pretty reasonable when you think about it. And that that exoskeleton-wearing employee, their productivity increases at least fourfold in the uh, heavy-lifting task domain. I'll give you another example of uh, an era, an era, that, an area that's been hyped. That's now out of fashion, of course, with the great again rotation and in stocks with tech being out, out of favor again. But another, another hype domain, of course, is uh, autonomous vehicles, uh, robo cars, you know, self-driving vehicles. It's been hyped on the roads, uh, and the hype is hype on the roads. It's gonna be very hard to have on-road autonomous vehicles. Talked about that before. I'll talk about it in the future podcast. But trust me, it's not easy. Uh, for all kinds of reasons, not not least because the um, complexities, uh, not just the liability issues, but the complexities that exist in uh, on-road environments. But in the off-road industrial environments, the complexities are far, far fewer. And and, and typically with heavy machinery uh, in industrial environments like mines, the speeds, the velocities are far, far lower. Uh, The tasks are much more repetitive. In other words, in, in engineering terms, it's the perfect environment for a uh, uh, truck autonomy in fact there are already hundreds of robo trucks operating at mine sites around the world they haven't been for years caterpillar which is uh, typically not on anybody's list of you know innovative uh autonomous vehicle companies in the you know, in the pop tech journals but caterpillar quite properly brags about the fact that they're a robo dumper they're autonomous dumper trucks they've uh, They've had them on the roads uh, for quite a while, and in fact, they and they claim, because they document this, that they've moved more than a billion tons, and uh, with trucks, robot trucks, and they've driven some 40 million uh, kilometers already, uh, moving autonomously without a without a human driver, in the off road, particularly mine environments. You know, robot trucks are uh, are no longer notional uh, off road, and they will be, and are already becoming a game changer, and they're far easier to deploy, not just because of the environment, but the machinery is expensive, right? These big machines that last a very long time. They're extraordinarily expensive. So the cost of autonomy is a percentage of the cost of the machine is an, is an arithmetical matter, a far smaller share of the overall machine cost. And because those machines are used at very high utilization rates, again, it reduces the effective cost of adoption. And the incentive to do it, well, there's, Short labor. You want to. You want to have the person you can hire uh, do a higher upskilled task than drive the truck, which is in fact exactly what's happening. You know, practical automation is is now inevitable uh, across the entire industrial and construction domains, in, in not just in driving trucks, but doing things like lay bricks and carrying pipes, and uh, moving. In fact, even into the uh, domains of mineral exploration. A few years ago. Uh, Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, they jointly funded a startup company that's making uh, what that company calls a kind of Google Maps for finding uh, locations for mineral geology, for finding locations for promising mine sites. And the way that, um, that software works is that uh, it's not sending people, robots out in the field with hammers to chip away at rocks to look for data, but because so much of that's already happened, there's been so much exploration, so much data in the public domain. What the software does is it kind of uh, vacuums up, sort of hoovers up all the data that already exists, all the explorations uh, data that's, that's been undertaken and uh, uses artificial intelligence and machine learning to do what you would call virtual exploration, re-examining all the data. Uh, it's, it's a pretty slick idea. It's already uh, yielding some uh, positive results. And that, that too is going to accelerate our ability to find and qualify new mines. I'll restate something I said earlier. If you want to open the mine, you're going to still have to have real, not virtual regulators that let you open the mine and real, not virtual politicians uh, pass laws that make it possible to get permits for those mines in timeframes that investors will tolerate in the parts of the world we'd like to work, otherwise the mines are gonna be in places where there's a lot of graft and very few regulations. Um, Africa, a lot of parts of South America, and have outcomes that a lot of people who are serious about the environment and human rights don't find very appealing. So, but I digress. Back to technology. Should also point out that one of the other technology revolutions in mining that's relevant, again, is in the skilled trades. Robots, robot trucks, autonomous uh, virtual exploration are not going to replace people. They're going to augment people. They'll reduce the number of people needed, but we're still going to need people with skills, both the higher education skills, the geophysicists, petroleum geologists, uh, ke- physical chemists. And we're going to need people with skills to operate big machines. All of the machines will still be directly operated by humans. So how do you train those people? There too, we have a revolution in, um, budding in technology. Uh, This would be what I would call the virtual simulator revolution. Uh, The tech revolution there is is gonna echo what's happened in the uh, aviation industry. If you think about uh, in aviation a century ago, a guy named Link invented the Link simulator. Uh, Flight simulation uh, pre-World War II uh, had profound improvement in the speed with which pilots could learn to fly, which is a skill obviously and a profound reduction in the accident rate and death rate, frankly, of uh, training pilots in the early phases. Airplanes are big and expensive. Simulators are big and expensive. Technology is now making simulators less expensive and hyper-realistic uh, for learning how to operate heavy equipment that's less expensive than multi-million-dollar airplanes. That form of training, virtual simulation of uh, physical tasks is already becoming Uh, Possible, in fact, there have been simulators to learn how to operate backhoes and excavators now on the market and being used for quite a few years. Uh, That will keep expanding into all the trades themselves, including welding and and, uh, bricklaying. All all of this this, uh, really does uh, portend a revolution in the industrial and mining sector, a a continuation of the long-run expansion of our ability to get minerals and get them at costs we can afford. It's just not gonna happen overnight. It's gonna take a few years, um, maybe a decade, maybe during the roaring 2020s. In the meantime, the kind of revolutions people are talking about, I I guess I have to say are kind of silly, right? I'm not unaware of the big push to electrify mining trucks and mining equipment, you know, put batteries in, in them instead of big diesel engines. This is not a revolution. I mean, let's be serious about that. First, the, the equipment lifespan, these, these trucks last decades and decades. So the turnover means that even if you could have a practical battery powered giant backhoe or truck, it's not gonna be uh, deployed at scale for 30 to 40 years. But more importantly, batteries are just not up to the task, of the duty cycle and the energy requirements uh, for heavy equipment used in the industrial sector in most applications and especially in mining. And in the meantime, energy in mining is critical. It's 40% of the cost of mining is tied up in purchasing energy. And that was before energy prices escalated. And the future of mining is not going to be about getting minerals and putting them in the mining trucks It's going to be putting Silicon logic software into the mining trucks to get more minerals. It's just, that's just the reality that's going to happen. That's a, a real politique of energy observation. If you like in general, uh, it has to be said that the lifespans of the equipment, the whole industrial sector, the lifespans of mining equipment in particular, since it's measured in decades, not years, means that the kinds of expansion of mining and mineral capabilities that will be needed for transition policies just aren't gonna happen in the timeframes that policymakers imagine that they want. I mean, to think otherwise is to use the phrase of my earlier report, is magical thinking. If policymakers want to chart a future that puts less stress, both economic and environmental stress on the global mining infrastructures, what they should be doing is encouraging energy systems that use fewer minerals. Um, hydrocarbons use fewer minerals than green energy systems. And if they want to avoid using hydrocarbons, arguably the most important thing they could encourage would be more nuclear power. A nuclear fission offers a potential reduction in the material intensity compared to combustion of a hundredfold or a thousandfold lower quantity of minerals and materials compared to wind and solar. Nukes are great when it comes to the footprint, if you like, of producing energy on the planet. But nuclear power is a whole separate story. I'll talk about another day, another podcast. In the meantime, if we want to um, uh, do something about what's going on in the real world with respect to Russia, uh, we want to de-escalate. Our dependency on hydrocarbons from Russia, there's really only one solution, increase hydrocarbon production elsewhere. That will have the benefit of oversupplying the world. Oversupplying the world with oil and gas and coal will reduce the costs of oil, gas, and coal, and reduce energy costs, and reduce food costs, and reduce inflation. And the increase in wealth will allow us to make the kinds of investments that we wanna make in emerging technologies to make mineral mining cheaper and to put artificial intelligence and robot trucks, if you like, into mines, and maybe even to make them so clean and so appealing that legislators and regulators in America will decide to re-embrace uh, and, and re reanimate and expanding a uh, domestic uh, mineral refining and mining industry. Call me naive, call me optimistic, I think that's, I know it's technically possible, uh, whether it's politically possible or not, I would have said no chance uh, pre-Ukraine, but I do think the Ukraine invasion is forcing a, a fundamental energy geopolitic and energy reset in thinking. It's no question that the world will eventually have the technologies we want to supply the scale of minerals we need at low costs. The basic resources exist. The emerging technologies make it possible. We can replicate the, the, the record of the last century of expanding supply and moderate or declining costs eventually. That's provided policymakers, I guess you could say, get out of their own way. Again, I'm optimistic that could happen eventually. Uh, politics do matter, as I've pointed out in the introduction to my book. Um, I'm, I'm I'm confident that through, in, in America that there's and even in Europe now, there's just a path towards uh, a realization of the economic cost of being, uh, let's we'll say, uh, believing in magical thinking, right? There's a learning curve to this. Uh, I think we're deep into the learning curve. So in future podcasts, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about the technologies that reignite our economy on the other side of the equation, the energy demand side of the equation, all the things that will make our life better, more fun, healthier all these things consume energy i want to talk about that some more but today i really feel like because of ukraine and russia and the essential need for an energy reset we have to cover uh, this domain of uh energy realpolitik if you like so in the meantime uh let me remind you again that if you like these podcasts uh, do me the favor take the time to give uh give me a rating on whatever platform you choose uh for listening And now until the next episode, this is Mark Mills signing off for The Last Optimist.